Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff and I'm one of the leaders here. It's so great to have you. One of the things that we love to do every week is, in fact, study our Bibles. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 46 and 47. If you don't have any understanding of the Bible, that's the first book in your Bible. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we got you. We got you. There's a Bible underneath the seat around you, and you can use that hardback black Bible. And inside that Bible, if you'll turn to page 39... You're welcome. It's right there. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 46 and 47 today. Not all of it. I just want to tell the narrative of the story. So for the last several weeks, we've been working our way through Genesis. And about Genesis 37 or so, we were introduced to a man, a character in the story whose name was Joseph. So many of you might remember Joseph. Joseph is uh, one of 12 sons. He's one of 12 sons to his dad. He only has a younger brother, Benjamin, but all of his other brothers are older. He has 10 older brothers. And Joseph, the Bible tells us, is loved more by his dad than any of the other sons. In fact, he's his dad's favorite. And I think he's a pill. I'm just throwing it out there, right? He's always bothering his brothers. In fact, one day while the brothers were out in the field shepherding the flocks of their father, they see Joseph come up and they're like, and they grumble under their breath. And they, they take it upon themselves to sell their younger brother, Joseph, to a band of caravan people who are traveling through the area. They sell Joseph for money. Then they go back and tell the dad, Jacob, that Joseph had been killed by a wild beast, which I guess happens back then, you know? So anyways, they go back and tell dad that he's dead, but he's not dead. He's in fact been sold into slavery, but Jacob doesn't know that. Jacob, the one who loved Joseph more than anyone else is heartbroken. And in fact, he, he believes that Joseph, Joseph is, is dead. But we, looking into the story, we know that's not the case. In fact, Joseph is alive. He makes his way all the way down to Egypt, and through a strange course of events, he finds himself to be second in charge of all of Egypt. He's like the prime minister of sorts. And there's a great big famine that sweeps through the land, and all the people go to Joseph to buy grain so that they could live, to buy grain. And eventually, Joseph's own brothers show up and buy grain from Joseph. When they realize it's Joseph and Joseph, they have this little reunion thing. He asks this question. He's like, is, is dad still alive? Is, is Jacob, our father, still alive? He's been gone for 22 years. He has no idea. And the brothers say, yeah, he's alive. And, and Joseph's like, oh my, oh my goodness. Well, then here, take these wagons from, from Egypt and go back and get dad and bring him back. Bring back everything. Bring his, his other sons, bring the family, all the kids and the grandkids. And if you have any pets, bring them too, unless they're cats, leave the cats. But bring all the dogs. No, too far. Anyways, all right. So bring everyone and come, come and see me. The brothers go back to where Jacob is and they say, Joseph is alive. 
the beloved son of yours is alive. And he almost dismisses them. He's like, I just don't believe it. I can't believe it. It can't be true. But it is true. This beloved son who was thought to be dead is now alive again. Does it remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Let me help you. Jesus. Yes. If you've never been to Renaissance before, that's the answer to all of life's questions. It's Jesus. That's what we're looking to. In fact, one of the reasons we're reading the book of Genesis is to learn about Jesus. Jesus is the beloved son that was dead and is alive again. But when Jacob gets the news that Joseph is alive... And the invitation to go down and have a reunion with his beloved son and to leave the, the promised land of Canaan, he, he gathers up all the people, puts them all in the wagons that Pharaoh had given them, and he drives down to Beersheba, which is in the southern part of the land of Canaan. And it's there that he, it's there that he hesitates. It, it's in this town of Beersheba that he, he pauses. He doesn't go any further. And I think there's a reason why he pauses. And I think if we look at the reason why he stops... It will help us in our lives when we get to those places in our lives where we sometimes stop when, when there's an invitation to go do something great and good for God. Now, before we get there, we have to back up and remind ourselves of a couple things that, that Jacob would know. Jacob would remember that his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had been given this land, this land of Canaan. It had been promised to them by God. In fact, we call it the promised land. But not only was the land promised to them, but God also made some other promises to Abraham as well. And he said this to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. He goes, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky or the, sea, the sand on the seashore. And then if, any, if, you, if anyone blesses you, Abraham, you will be a blessing to them back. And he goes one step further. God says this. He goes, and Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations. Fast forward many generations and many centuries, if not millennia, and there's a baby born, a descendant of Abraham, and he's born in a little nondescript village called Bethlehem to a virgin named Mary. Anyone want to guess who that is? Jesus. Jesus. Yes, it's about Jesus. That Abraham's descendant, Jesus, is in fact a blessing to all the nations. In fact, we would call him the hope of all nations. The only hope we have is, in fact, in Christ Jesus. Jacob has this understanding. He's heard the stories of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, that God has made these promises and given them to us in this promised land. And I wonder if not Jacob is sitting at the precipice of the boundary, the border of this promised land, and pauses for a moment to consider this. If I leave this promised land, will I then be leaving all of the promises of God? See, God made these promises here, and I'm afraid that if I step out of this place and move out there, then it's quite possible that I'll step out of all of the promises that God has made for me and my family. So, so here's the thing that happens. Something inside of Jacob begins to grow. Something inside of Jacob begins to grow, and it's the same thing that, that you and I have to deal with, I think, on a daily basis sometimes. And when Jacob overcomes it, and as we look at the story of Jacob's life, as we learn how he overcame it, and when we learn to overcome this same issue in our lives, then and only then will we be able to step into that purpose and plan that God has for our lives. So I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to tell you what this thing is, that we can just take it into the street, put a bullet in it, and run it over with a street street. Is that okay? We're going to roll it over and kill this thing, all right? I didn't say that well, so let's start over. 
My name's Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. <laughs> if you have a Bible with you, Genesis 46. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for everything that you do. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It is all about him. We know that we have no standing before you but through Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you would send him for us. Jesus, we also thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us who comes to convict us of our sin, to lead us into righteousness, to empower us, to overcome things in our life. That it is the Holy Spirit who can open our eyes and ears, soften our hearts, that we might receive the very words of God as we study in Genesis 46 and 47. God, bless our time together and let us learn from you today. May our lives be enriched, encouraged, and even changed for the better today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. There are many commands in the Bible. There's a whole lot of thou shalts and even more thou shalt nots. And we expect to see those in the Bible. And some of them are quite famous. The Ten Commandments. You don't even have to go to church and know that there are some Ten Commandments. You might not know all of them, but you at least know a couple of them. Uh, One is do not steal. Right? Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. And these are all good things. Not the lying, stealing, and adultery, but the, the, the command to not lie, steal, and commit adultery. Like we expect God to say those things. And we could see how our lives would be better served if we were to be obedient to those commands. But you need to hear this. There are other commands in the Bible. Some commands even repeated more often than those. And one of them is the issue that Jacob is wrestling with. Jacob has this fear inside of him. And I know he has fear inside of him because when we start the story in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3, we see that God comes to Jacob in the middle of the night. As he's camped at Beersheba, he's made offerings and sacrifices to God. He's wondering, should I leave the promised land and go? Should I go? And he's fearful to leave. God comes to him in the middle of the night in the form of a vision. And reading here in verse 3, it says this. Verse 2, God speaks to Jacob. And the vision tonight says, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob responds, here I am. Then God says, I am God. Yes, you are. Yes, you are God. You have come. And he says, I am the God of your father. Now think about this. If, if Jacob is really wrestling with this issue of maybe stepping out of the promises that had been given to his father Isaac and his grandfather uh, Abraham, then maybe this is important that God would say this. It's not, he was not, I'm not just God. I'm the God of the promise giver who gave the promises to Isaac and to Abraham. I'm the one who spoke those things. And that's going to be important for us to understand that God is, in fact, the promise giver. And I'll go so, so far as to say he's also the promise keeper. He's the one who keeps his promises. And he comes before Jacob and says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid, he says. All through the scriptures, we read that phrase, do not be afraid. Fear not. Do not fear. Time and time and time again. In fact, I think it's one of the most repeated commands in all of scripture. And I say that intentionally. I believe it is a command that God would have us, his people to not be fearful people. This issue that Jacob is wrestling with, I think is the same issue that that you and I wrestle with sometimes. There, There are a lot of things to be fearful of. And the thing about fear in our lives is, is it, it unfortunately determines the boundaries of our life. For example, if you're afraid of heights, you stay low. If you're afraid of the dark, you stay in the light. I'm, I'm made fun of this all the time, and I don't care, but I have a, a profound fear of whales. That's a thing. 
It's a real thing, which is fine for me because I live in the middle of the United States, in the middle of a cornfield, in the middle of Illinois. I have no risk of running into a whale at any time, right? But my friends that go on cruises and do all this stuff and they show pictures, like, hey, Jeff, you want to go? I'm like, click no. No whales for me. Thank you very much. In fact, just this morning, as I think God was playing a trick on me, I'm going through some emails and someone sends me a clip of a guy on one of them paddle boats and just behind him is a killer whale. No part of that. Some people are afraid of spiders and snakes. And there's, it's not just irrational fears that sometimes determine the limits of our lives, but sometimes fears of, of doing the wrong thing. That We oftentimes feel like, well, I think God wants me to do this thing in my life, but I don't, I don't really hear from him clearly in this. And I'm afraid if I, if I do this thing, it's maybe not what God wants for me. I've counseled many young people in my office, and oftentimes it's questions like this. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if I should take this job and move uh, to this other city. I don't know if this is what God wants for me. I don't know if this is the person I'm supposed to marry. I'm, really, I'm thinking about like buying an engagement ring. I'm really leaning into this idea of being with this person for the rest of my life, but I just don't know if I should do it. And, and you hear the fear in their voice, and they just don't know what to do. God wants us to overcome these things in our life. He speaks to Jacob, and he says, do not fear. I am the God of your father. I'm the one who told the promises to them. If you have this irrational fear that somehow crossing the border out of Canaan into the land of Egypt will, will strip the promises away from you, you don't know who I am. I think maybe the biggest thing for us to pick up right here is to, to remind ourselves to, to always hold on to the promises of God. But the process by which he gets us to those promises can move back and forth. Yes? It could, it could shift this way and that way and this way and that way. And those, those of you who are old like me, you might look back on your life and remember that you thought you were following God that one time in your 20s and whoa, missed it. And you, were, and you found your way getting called back. And you look back on your life and it is like, you, like you're blind trying to navigate through your life. But we're oftentimes just following what God would have us to do. He, in fact, controls the process. And what we're learning through Jacob's life here is that he might very well have to step out of this this place where he believes the promise is contained and step into the one who gives the promise. I think that will help us today. Jacob hears God in this vision and immediately, verse 5, does something profound. It says that Jacob then set out from Beersheba. He said, deal, bet, God, if you're going with me, if you say, do not be afraid, you're going to go down with me into Egypt, fine, I'm going to go. So he packs up the U-Haul with all his stuff, and, and he heads out. Look here in verse 7. It says that all of his sons and his sons' sons went with him. His daughters and his sons' daughters, all of his offspring, he brought with him into Egypt. Now, think about this. This is every person in his family. If he was like me at any point, he would have done what I would have done. I probably would have left a family member behind just in case, right? Sorry about you, Reuben, but could you stay back here just in case the promise is dependent upon us living here? Maybe he would have done that, but he doesn't. Moses gives us the details. Every person in his family, everything they owned was loaded up into wagons and driven down to Egypt. He is, as the poker players would say, all in. There's no plan B at this point. Sometimes the mountain of fear that stands before us has to be dealt with like that. It's almost pointless to scale up and down 50, 60 times 
God just wants the mountain to be gone altogether. You need to trust God to move the mountain. He says yes to God and he follows him and takes everyone with him. He goes down into Egypt. Joseph at this point finds or hears word that his family has arrived. They're just in the outskirts of Egypt in this town or this area called Goshen. And when Joseph hears about it, verse 29 of chapter 46, it says this. But then Joseph prepared his chariots and he went up to meet Israel or Jacob. That's his father in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. What an emotional reunion. For 22 years, Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. And here he stands in the flesh. He hasn't seen him since he was a teenager. Hasn't seen him for, for a long time. And now he is. And, and you can just picture what this looks like. And in fact, uh, Jacob goes one step further in the next verse. And he says, um, now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are alive. He says, my life has been fulfilled. I need nothing else from you. Take me now, Lord. Right? When the life is that good, you're like, I don't need anything else. The wonderful thing about that story is not only was he reunited with his son, not only did he escape the peril of famine that was taking place, right? They're not going to wither and die and starve to death. They're in Egypt now. He sees his son, but then God gives him another 17 years of life. The Bible tells us that he continues to live for 17 years. He lost his son for 22. He gets 17 back. This is what it looks like when we follow God in our life. See, all too often we've been... Um, sold the belief or the lie that if we decide to follow God, that sometimes our, our life is, doesn't get better. It gets worse. In fact, some of my friends who are non-Christians, when I tell them the things that I was willing to give up to follow Jesus, they would never give those things up. Jeff, you're insane. Those things are way too fun to do. Fill in the blank. Yes, all those things. You stopped doing that? Mm-hmm. I did. I did. I'm telling you, the life that I'm living now, you can ask anyone in the room who would profess to be a Christian and it might really be one in this room. And there's probably a few of us in here. Uh -huh. It is Renaissance. You never know. There might be one or two Christians in here. But no, seriously, if you were to talk to a real Christian who, who has devoted themselves to serve Jesus and to follow Jesus, although ask them if their life is better now or what it was before they were following Jesus. I'm telling you, it's better, man. I'm not, I, I get no commission on this. It ain't, like, I don't, there's no, I don't know bonus coming to me for this cell. Nothing. I'm just telling you, what Jacob decided to do was to step out of fear and follow God, what benefited his life in a way that he could never possibly imagine. Take me now, he says. I don't need anything else. And God goes, well, watch, 17 more years. He's 130 years old. We'll get to that in a little bit. He's old is all I'm saying. He goes before Joseph. He says, let me die now. Then Joseph then takes both his father and some of his brothers. Now turning our attention to chapter 47. And he takes his father and his brothers before Pharaoh, starting in verse 1. It says, so then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh that my father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And they are now in the land of Goshen. In verse 3 Pharaoh sees the brothers and asks them this question. Well, what is your occupation? Tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you guys do for a living? And they said, we're shepherds. We just watch sheep. It's kind of what we do. Our parents, have, our dad has done that before us, and our dad before him did that. It's just, we just watch sheep. 
right? We just are shepherds. We just clean up after sheep and take care of all the sheep. They asked to live in the land of Goshen, which is a great pasture land just outside the Nile. It's great for livestock. And the Egyptians kind of look down at, at shepherds, so it's kind of a good thing for them. So they tell Pharaoh, we're shepherds. And then he goes one step further. He gives them the land of Goshen, but he also says, if any of you are really good at your job, I'll put you to work in my office. You can watch over all the livestock of Egypt. Now, think about this. Jacob's fear stopped him from going to Egypt. God comes, addresses the fear, says, follow me. He says, yes. He reunites with this son, lives another 17 years, which we'll learn of. Not only do some of his sons get a good pasture land, but then they get jobs working for the government. Like he's working for Pharaoh with positions of power and authority. It's more than they could possibly bargain or ever consider they could get. And yet God does this for them. We're just shepherds. We're we're kind of nobodies. Well, you're in charge now. Funny story. Um, Ever since I was a young boy, and I mean young, I'm I'm five years old maybe. Whenever I was old enough to actually put the records onto the record player, this is dating me here, I know. But I I loved music. My parents, they couldn't stand it because I love music so much. I'm constantly playing music. Even when I was so young, I was in a band when I was five years old, and I couldn't even play an instrument. Does that even make sense to you? It's strange, I know, but I was in a band with my neighborhood friends. We had a band name. We created album art, and we were writing songs, and none of us could play an instrument. I'm just saying I loved music. I turned in the, in the fourth grade, I turned 12 or how, 10, I have no idea. I, I learned to play the drums in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Sophomore year of high school, I changed to guitar. You know why I changed to guitar? Girls, exactly right. <laughs> they don't like drummers, <laughs> right? You, hey, you guys know how to get a drummer off of your doorstep? You pay him for the pizza. I'm just saying. Hey, ho, hey, ho, hey. Sorry, Mary. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a real musician. I'm a guitar player now. That's all I'm saying. And then I, I, I join a band. And I play in a band all through high school. And in my college years, I was in a cover band and we played bars every weekend. It's really how I supported myself as I went through college. And into my 20s, I'm in this same band. It was my life. It was everything to me. And then one year when I was 26 years old, I met a girl and I met Jesus in the same year. In fact, that girl was so instrumental in bringing me to Jesus, I ended up marrying her. 22 years I've been married to that wonderful lady. (laughs) Music, um, as you can imagine, takes a back seat in my life at this point. I'm married now, right? I'm married. She's my main thing, right? Not the band and not everything else. And, And Jesus is now my main thing. I'm giving my life over to him. And I played the last gig with my bandmates. And I took my guitar off, put it in the guitar case. I shut it slid it under my bed, and it stayed there for three years. Stayed there for three years. In the meantime, I've been going to church, and lo and behold, one of the pastors at the church finds out that I play guitar. And I don't know if you know that. If you're a musician in a church, you are golden. You can write your own ticket. (laughs) And they come up to me, and they're like, Jeff, would you like to play guitar in the band? And I, I wish I could describe it to you, what happened to me. Here I go. It's as if God himself struck a match, put it in my heart. You know how the flame of a, a match is such a fickle thing, like the, the smallest breeze will just blow it out? 
But if you feed it with a little tinder and some twigs, it, it gathers an appetite that's all its own. And it hungers and hungers for more fuel. When that pastor asked me if I'd want to play in the band, a flame was lit inside of me. And I said yes before I could even think about it. Well, heck yes. I go pull out that guitar that had been under my bed. It had rusted. It was in such bad shape. And I cleaned it up and started playing in church. Every week I played guitar, guitar, guitar. Eventually they asked me to be the worship leader. I have no business leading worship in a church. I'm just a guy who plays guitar, right? I'm just a shepherd. I don't need a position of authority. I'm just a shepherd. I just, a guy who said yes to God. You see the parallel. It's, we don't think our lives really have much meaning or matter. I'm telling you, God is willing to use whatever we are and whoever we are and use us to do the things that he would want us to do. He uses our lives into the purposes and the plans that he has for us. They're just shepherds. I'm just a guitar player, and I'm leading worship in a church of two, three, four hundred, five hundred people every week. I've got 40 to 60 musicians in the band. I'm ministering to them. I'm learning how to pastor and shepherd people. And then God comes and says, hey, Jeff, let's plan a church together, shall we? You're going to be a pastor one day. And I'm going, What? I'm just a guitar player. I'm just a guitar player. The mountain of fear that stood between me and the church plant that eventually became Renaissance was so great, no effort of my own could ever scale it and get over it. It required God to do a work in me to just literally push this mountain out of the way so that I could walk and follow him. Jacob's story is is our story. It's the same for us. We oftentimes think that the the promises are dependent upon the things that we're doing when the promises are given. Jacob was convinced that the promises are, are bound to the land and God is standing before him. He says, no, I'm the promise giver. You follow me. I'm the one you follow. It's not dependent on the things that you do. It's dependent on what I do for you. I was praying this morning for some, for some people that I think are going to be in the room today. We have three church services here. I don't know if you know that. We have a nine o'clock. They've come and gone. You're here now. We'll do this again at six. And in my spirit, I believe that there are people in this room who need to hear what I'm about to say next. That when God comes and talks to us, and we work out the plans that God has for us in our lives, we oftentimes, oftentimes equate the things we're doing in our lives as the promise. Let me give you an example. When I was first called to be a worship leader, when I was first called to plant a church, I was a much more disciplined person in the things of God. I read my Bible a ton, which I think is important if you're going to be a pastor of a church, right? I prayed a lot. I don't speak in hyperbole here. I would bend my eyes to pray. I'd close my eyes to pray and I would open and four hours had passed. I fasted repeatedly. And I don't say these things to make myself sound amazing. I'm just saying that's the season. That's the process that God was walking me through that I might become a worship leader and an eventual pastor in a church. Fasting. Does anyone fast here? Why? I'm I'm just... uh, Waffles. I'm just saying. And But that was the season of my life. Now listen. This is where I think it's going to be helpful for us. 
Fast forward a number of years, I find myself having planted the church, and I feel some distance between me and God. I don't blame God. If there's anyone that's fallen short in this relationship, it's moi. It's me. And my, my immediate reaction is to go back to those things, to go back to disciplines of prayer, back to disciplines of fasting, back to hour-long hour Bible sessions and, and all of this stuff. And God had to continually remind me, Jeff, those aren't the promises. <laughs> the promises are me, he says. That was necessary for your life right now. I'm not asking you to go back to those things. I'm asking you to say yes to me now. And, and the reason this is helpful is there's so many people here who have this idea that it's religious works that somehow obligate or bind God to fulfill his promise. And that's not how this works. He makes a promise. He keeps it. He keeps it regardless of your disciplines. That'll shake some people awake in here. And, and I only say those things because I'm, I'm desperate that you would hear it's the call of Christ in your life, not the call of doing things for Christ in your life. Do you hear the difference? I know it sounds like I'm, I'm splitting hairs and the difference is so subtle, subtle, but it makes all the difference for us. God is asking us to follow him and the process by which we follow him will look different some days. Am I saying don't read your Bible? Heck no, I would never say that. Am I saying don't pray? No, please pray. All of those things. But I'm telling you, if you think God is obligated to you because you've done those, you're missing the point. God's obligated to you, not because of you, but because of his love for you. Amen. That's what he's doing. Now, he will rip you through a process that will flip you upside down some days. And maybe you'll have a journey that looks similar to mine. I don't know. But I know this. I've learned to hold on to the promise more now than the process. I let God work this thing out. I think that was helpful. I, send me an email if it wasn't. <laughs> I'll delete it. It'll be fine. I won't delete it. Pharaoh stands before Jacob, his father, Joseph's father now, after having talked to the brothers, giving them a position of authority. And he says, so tell me about your life. And he says this in verse 8. Pharaoh says to Jacob, the father, how many are the days of the years of your life? Sounds like a soap opera. And Jacob says to Pharaoh, well, the days of the years of my sojourning, I love how he switched that word. He's like, what are the days of the years of your life? He goes, well, the days of the years of my sojourning. He, he says something about his life. He says, I've been a wanderer the entirety of my life. Sojourner just means wanderer, sort of a vagabond of sorts. And he begins to tell his story, his process that God has walked him through. And I wonder if we would lean into this conversation if he doesn't sit before Pharaoh and say things like this. Yeah, when I was a, a young boy, I, I stole the birthright from my twin brother Esau. I stole it from him. I deceived my father, took in his inheritance. I fled for my life, went to live with my uncle Laban, who eventually deceived me. I got not one, but two wives. Hello. I got one, but two wives. I come back, he deceives me. I'm traveling back to the land of Canaan where my, where my brother is. My daughter Dinah is, is horribly raped by some wicked men in the country. My sons take vengeance upon her. It's a crazy story. You can read about it. And here he goes, then I, I go through and find out that my own sons have lied to me and told me that my favorite son has been murdered by a wild animal and that for 22 years he was alive the whole time. And, and time and time again, he's telling him the story. He says, I, I've lived 130 years. And a lot of those years, he says, were evil, he says. But if there is hope for us in 
if there would be a hopeful word for us, it is this, is that, that oftentimes, despite the circumstances of our life, and yes, some of us have done evil things. Don't say amen. Some of us have done evil in the sight of God. He still calls us to himself. His testimony is, my years have been evil. I've done the most deplorable things, and yet God met me in a vision but a few days ago and says, follow me. I'm taking you down to Egypt. I will reunite you with your beloved. You will not wither and die. I will bring you life, he says. Verse 12, it tells us that Joseph provided for his father and his brothers and all of the father's household with food. That was the big thing. They were out of food. The famine was great in the land. And it seems like the story has a period at the end. It just stops. And it'd be a great place to stop. But if you keep reading, there's this interesting story that continues in, in chapter 47. And when I, when I was first thinking about preaching this, I didn't even want to touch this part because it didn't feel like it fit to me. But the story continues that not only is Joseph's family here now, and yes, he's providing food for them, but he's in fact providing food for all of Egypt. All of Egypt is coming to Joseph because the, the famine is great in their land too, and they're buying food. They're buying food from Joseph, and he's giving them life. He's giving them food, but eventually their money runs out. Eventually they have no more money, and they come back to Joseph. Um, look here in verse 15 of chapter 47. It said, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph says, well, you don't have any money? You have any livestock? I'll take that. And he buys their livestock, their sheep, their cattle, their horses. He buys all their stuff. And, and eventually all of their livestock is gone. And they come back to Joseph after about a year. And now they go, we got nothing. We got no money. We got no livestock. We have nothing but ourselves. Verse 19 why should we die before your eyes, Joseph, both we and our land? He, they say these words, buy us and our land for food. They're willing to indenture themselves, to become slaves to the Pharaoh so that they might eat again. Things are so desperate in their lives, there's nothing left but themselves. And they offer themselves up so that they might get some food and live. Now, I read this story, and I'm going, man, this makes no sense to me. It doesn't even feel like it ties to the rest of what I said. And then I remind myself that the reason we're studying Genesis is because we're looking to find Jesus Christ in the stories here. Can I tell you that, that Joseph directly parallels Jesus Christ in this story? That he is saying to us, all of us who, who think we can make life on our own, who think we can buy our own life with our money and all of our stuff, right? Livestock, just think... I don't know, vacation home or something. Think of all the stuff that you have that you're trying to find meaning in life. And it's only till we get to the end of all of that stuff and come before Jesus himself. And he says, the only thing I ask of you is you. I don't want your stuff. I don't need your money. Jesus does not need your money. But if you wrote a check to Jesus, we will cash it in this church. <laughs> And that's a real thing because no one can spell renaissance. If you just write Jesus on the check, we will catch it. He doesn't need that from you. He doesn't want all your stuff. The only thing that God is asking through his son Jesus is you. It's when we get to this place of surrender, complete surrender. The only way I'm going to live the life that God has for me is to just give him myself. 
then and only then do we live the life that Jesus talks about in John's gospel chapter 10. Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. You guys know this story. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. When I call, they come and I care for them. I lead them, I water them, I feed them, and all of this stuff. And there's a, a real thief out there, a wolf who's trying to come in. This thief will try to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've not come to do those things. I've come to give something to my sheep. I've come to give them life, and not just any life, but life to the full. This abundant life that Christ promises us. God bless you with, in a, with as much pastoral care as I can muster for some of you. It will not come to you until you surrender your life. <laughs> there is no other way. You will not earn it. You will not ever be able to buy it from him. All he's asking for you is to say, I can't do it on my own. Take my life. Buy me. Save me is what we say. When I prayed this morning for our gatherings today, I, I, I believe there are people in this room today who are going to say yes to Jesus for the first time. I believed it at the last service. Now, those are bold statements, right? For me to say, I think God's going to save some people today. But I believe it. I'm standing on the sidewalk after the nine o'clock. A girl comes up to me and she says, I surrender. Hugs me and walks away. Can't remember her name. I don't know if I know her really. <laughs> but she said, I surrendered today. I said, praise God. The helpful thing for us to remember is that as God stands before us and calls us to himself, he knows that there are fearful things between us and him. He, he knows that. And he's not, I mean, he's, he's good enough to us to address those things. He gives us stories like the story of Jacob. See, we oftentimes sit back and go, man, I wish God would speak to me in a vision. Dude, me too. Me too. And I've had some pretty great experiences with God where he's actually like, like really done some cool stuff in my life. But in those moments of my life when I don't have those miraculous moments, I look to the stories of the Bible and I'm going, well, if God is immutable, if he never changes, right? And he dealt with Jacob this way. If the, if the, if the ask to him was to just do not fear and to go, then I'm going to not fear and go. And that's all I need to move forward. I sound so brave. <laughs> no. There are some days it's a, it's a real amount of work. I seem to, to try to do everything I know in my own power to make this thing work for me until I go back to these stories and see all it took was just a complete surrender to follow. I want to pray for us. I'm going to close. The band is, is going to come back and we're going to go back into a time of worship and singing. When I pray for us, I'm going to pray for a couple groups of people. I want to pray for the people that are here who maybe need to surrender fully. And I don't know what that looks like for you. For me, 20 some years ago, I just said yes to the Lord, like this lady did on the sidewalk this morning. She just said, yes, I surrender. I'm going to give my life to Christ. And we'll help you with that. We'll navigate through all of that. It'll be fine. We're going to hold on to God, the, the one who makes the promise to give us full life, abundant life. And we're going to help you with the process as God walks that through. So there's a few people in the room that are going to do that and praise God for you. <laughs> Here's the cool thing. Some of you think you're just visiting because someone invited you. 
You just think you're here because, like, I'm just here to, like, shut my aunt up. Okay, I'll go, whatever. And yet God in his providence is, is drilling on you right now. The question is, will you surrender today? It'll make all the difference. All the difference. So there's those group of people. I apologize. I'm a little shouty right there. I feel kind of bad about that. But I'm telling you, you must hear that. The second thing is a group of people who need to hear that God is not interested in your religious activity. He's not. All he cares about is you believe in the promise and doing everything you possibly can to find it. To find the promise in Christ. To find the promise in God. To find the promise in everything that he has. Those promises, hear me, are not dependent upon your religious activity. I know it drives people nuts when I say those things. I'm telling you, that's what the Bible teaches us. Those promises are dependent upon his love for you, not the things you do for him. He wouldn't be good if that were true. The good thing about God is he gives us things when we don't deserve them. The grace that's undeserved and unmerited comes from him freely. We respond in religious activity to him. You hear that? Our response to him is to study and to pray and to worship and to hang out with a bunch of people in a thing called church on Sunday and do crazy things like sing songs to Jesus and all of that. That's the response to him. But it's not what earns it from him. There's a group of people who desperately need to hear that today. God loves you. He's calling you again and again and again to follow. Do not be afraid, he would say. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son Jesus and everything that is available to us through him. That if Jesus didn't come and die upon a cross for the the sins of us, Lord, and be buried in a grave to only be raised from the dead on the third day, overcoming sin, death, and the grave. Without Christ doing that, Lord, we would have no hope of an abundant life here or even an eternal life with you forever. But for Christ and his willingness to do that, we thank you, God. Holy Spirit, it is your responsibility to convince the world of their sin. And we are part of this world. God, I ask you to come now through the power of your Holy Spirit to to work on us about the things in our life that you wish were not there. That these sinful things are against you and you do not want us to stand against you. So Holy Spirit, speak to the issues of sin. And then we ask God that you would help us to overcome those things as we put aside fear and follow you. I'll even go so far to pray, God, will you take the sin of fear away from us? As you've commanded us to have no fear, we confess to you, we are fearful people. But you are a good shepherd and you lead us into fullness of life. And so we want to say yes, God. God, thank you for our time together. May our voices now sing like a choir to the heavens thanking Jesus for everything he's done. God, we thank you and you are good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.